0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. We will get into our regular programming here shortly. We always start with a little COVID-19 before we dive into sports. But first, we're excited to have Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio with us. Governor DeWine has been in office since winning election in 2018. He served as Attorney General of Ohio beforehand and twice as U.S. Senator out of Ohio. Importantly for us, he is responsible for Ohio's Vax a Million lottery program. This was something we got very excited about a couple of weeks ago. As we started thinking about ways to incent more vaccinations, Ohio got creative and came up with this lottery. So we're delighted to have a chance to talk about that with Governor DeWine. He stopped by and visited with us yesterday. Good afternoon, Governor. Appreciate your joining us. Sure. Happy, happy to do it. Well, we've been excited about your lottery there in Ohio. We've been covering COVID as a part of our analytics show for the last year plus. And in the last few weeks, we've settled into what many have settled into, which is, okay, how are we going to get more people to get this vaccine <laughs> now that we seem to have taken all the happy volunteers? And we, we didn't come up with the lottery, but as soon as we saw your lottery suggestion, we were pretty excited about it. We're, we're curious how you guys decided to do that. Well,
3: you know, we saw, as most states did, a, a significant dip in vaccinations uh, that coincided with the Johnson & Johnson being taken off the market for a while. Mm-hmm. And really, I think he had two, two things coming together. Uh, you had the Johnson & Johnson and concern about that. But you also, we had reached a point which we anticipated where the people who really wanted it had already gotten it. Right. Uh, so, you know, then the question was, well, what do we do about this? And we just started thinking and thinking and trying to come up with different, different ideas. Uh, and one of the things that I've always tried to do is get out and just listen to people and hear what people are saying. Uh, mm-hmm. My wife and I have been now to over 40 different vaccination sites and, you know, we would talk to people who were being vaccinated and ask them what their hesitancy had been, why they'd waited. Uh, just, you know, mostly listen to what they had to say and it became clear that you had three groups of people. Uh, no surprise, you had the vaccinated and those are the people who really want it. Most of them have already got it. You've got people who are never going to get it never, never, never. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you got people in in the middle who it wasn't, you know, either they hadn't made up their mind or in many cases we found they were people that thought, well, I'm I'm probably going to get it, but I'm just, you know, I'm not in a big hurry to get it. And, uh, you know, I'll do that sometime. So after listening to these people and just trying to figure out, you know, what we could get to, to motivate people, um, one of my assistants, uh, Anna O'Donnell, uh, said, uh, look, uh, you know, we were brainstorming on a conference call, and she said, what about lottery? And, you know, um, we didn't talk about it very long. We kind of moved on to some other things. And then I started really thinking about it, trying to decide, will that work? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, uh, yeah, this just may work. And it may, you know, not only get more people to get the vaccine, but for the people who eventually were going to get it, it may move their timetable up. Mm -hmm. And as you know, the more people that we can, the faster we can get more people vaccinated, we're pulling people out of their ability to get it and spread it. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a real urgency doing this as fast as, as as we can. So we kicked around different ways of doing it. Finally came up with, uh, you know, Five five weeks at five million a piece, and then somebody said, well, "What about kids? We got to figure out something for kids." Um, and um, General Harris of the National Guard, uh, he suggested, "Hey, he says, what about a scholarship?" And I said, "Okay, if we're going to do a scholarship, let's peg it to uh, basically the 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 cost of a state, uh, the state, the highest, most expensive state university in Ohio. Give them four years, a scholarship, and four years of books, four years of uh, uh, room and board." And so that's that's how we came up with it. Uh, it has been so far very successful uh, we have, have seen have seen about a forty five percent increase uh, in in number of people who who want it who are getting vaccinated and the most important thing is we just stopped the slide. you know we right. stopped the slide going down now we're moving moving back up. Uh, I had our team dig into some some of the demographics uh, today, uh, you know, the top 10 counties where we've seen the biggest increase have been 10 basically rural counties. Is that right? Uh, So, yeah, so that's interesting. Uh, Another very interesting thing is by far the, the age group uh, that has, has, gotten vaccinated at a much 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 faster rate over 100 percent faster uh is those about ready to go to college so you know 16 17 years old uh you know this age group is <laughs> looking at that looking at that 16 17 year olds looking about going to college and uh you know they've they've really picked up their vaccination rates just phenomenal
2: that's that's neat governor you, you talked about the lottery idea. You, you it came up, you considered it, and you thought about it more and, and started liking it quite a bit. We talk about economics on the show. We talk about psychology on this show. And we're curious how you decided a lottery versus just making payments. You know, some places are giving away game tickets. Some places are just giving away money. Some places are giving away beer. What did you think was especially appealing about a lottery just versus spending, say, the same amount of money on books or movies or sports or just checks?
3: Yeah, and look, we're not saying we did it right. I mean, there's other ways of doing it. Um, uh, you know, I kind of go back to a, a quote I read from, you know, uh, baseball general manager and owner Bill Beck many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, he basically said, uh, you know, he's a great promoter and, and about getting people excited and getting people's attention. And he said, look, he said, I can give a thousand people to ballpark and beer. Uh, or I can give one person a thousand beers. <laughs> and he says, what do you think the people are going to be talking about tomorrow? Uh, you know, the quote, I paraphrase it. It basically says, you know, give a thousand people the ballpark a beer, they drink the beer and they go back watching the game. That's all great. But if I give one person a thousand beers uh, or, you know, a month's worth of beers or a year's worth of beers, you know, people will be talking about that. Right. And so right. we just, we need to kick this thing up. We need to get some excitement and we'd already gotten the people who really, really were excited about getting it. And, and so then it was, you know, how do we move these numbers up? And, you know, this is vaccination now is the only game in town. Right. Uh, people are sick of everything else. Uh, you know, so for a while we could kind of hold it back with with masks. And we did it in schools, for example, very, very successfully. But people are just sick of this and they mm-hmm. want to get back. And the good news is we now have a way for people to pretty much guarantee they're not going to get it and guarantee for the rest of us they're not going to spread it. Mm -hmm. And that's the vaccination. So as I told our team, you know, it's the game now has moved and the game is all about vaccines. So whatever we do, you know, we have to be focused on on the vaccine and figuring out, you know, what we can do. And right. look, we continue to do do the other things. We have close to two thousand sites in Ohio where people can get the vaccine. So availability is important. It's important to go reach the person who can't leave their home. We've got great health Mm -hmm. departments who are doing that. We've got some health departments in Ohio who are knocking on doors, literally knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of that's going on and we continue to work every day on making it available and and not having anybody who, you know, can't get it and making it easy for them to get Mm -hmm. it. But Mm -hmm. it was clear we needed something else. And we we need to kind of put a shot in the arm, uh, you know, so to speak, and, and, and get things moving. And we have uh, the first week, the first week after we announced it, uh, we have received $15 million worth of of basically free advertising or media, 15 million. I don't know what the number is now, but you know, we get these figures back from, from companies that do this. And so uh, you know, I was just watching the news a minute ago, and uh, you know, it was it was uh, it was it was on there, and it's just it, it's big news in Ohio. And I wanted to spread it out because I wanted I didn't want to just do it once. I wanted to do it and then build for the anticipation seven days later. Right. And right. then build and w- and once you register, you're in. And, you know, we tried to be active. more we thought okay. about oh, let's just do it for people who are going to get vaccinated look, looking forward. And so that just doesn't—that's just not fair.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: so we want people to feel fair about it and feel good about it. Uh, but you know, this is—it's uh, worked so far. <laughs> so it's you know, yeah, and, we, you we, know, people say, and I know that people were going to say, and I said this in my speech when I announced. I said, look, people are going to say the wine's crazy. They're going to say, uh, you know, this is a waste of money. Well what the real waste is at this stage in the pandemic.
2: When we have the vaccine, the real right. stage is for somebody to
3: die of COVID. That is
2: right. the real waste. Right. And we're just kind of eyeballing your numbers, but it looks to us like you're, you've brought in an extra tens of thousands a day, extra shots. And so it, it's going to be a hard time people arguing against the effectiveness of this. Um, Governor DeWine, yeah, I've it, got a, it's, I've, it's I've got a sure. colleague here with another question for you.
0: Yeah, sure. I, I'm really one thing I think it's very clear is that you got lots of people to take the vaccine. But I think what you probably need to emphasize is, is the message, which I'm coming clear to me right now, is that it's the speed that matters. I don't think in the end of the day, you'll probably yeah. end up with yeah. more people vaccinated than you would have without it. But you've saved lives by getting it done so much faster. I know lots of people who intend to get vaccine, but they're just sitting on it. Now you're saying, get, do it, yep. make some money.
3: Well, look, that's exactly right, and and you know we've lived with this virus, we've watched it every day for over a year, and we you know we know how bad it is, we know how it spreads, and the idea that we can pull more and more people out, uh, you know, it's 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 like the it's like the uh, the ad that we did one early on where you had the mousetraps and all the you, you know all the ping pong balls, and one sets off there. Well, when you pull half of those out, and they keep pulling them out, you know. That is making a difference. And the value of that, I mean, I said when we talked to my team, I said, look, the value of getting somebody to be vaccinated today versus two months from now is huge. Mm -hmm. It just Mm -hmm. is. It's just very, very important. So, you know, I don't know whether you're right about it'll be the same number, but we did know, you know, we felt very, very strongly based on, you know, the medical science that the faster, the faster we could get people vaccinated. Uh, we would save
2: lives and slow the spread. Governor DeWine, I'm struck by the fact that we're talking to you. You have our attention again here kind of towards the end of the pandemic. You also had our attention in the beginning of the pandemic. I was driving across country the first weekend of the pandemic. We were relocating to quarantine closer to family, and we were listening to the Sunday morning shows. And you were on those Sunday morning shows the very first weekend, and you were advocating what seems, I think, in retrospect, to be pretty wise public policy. Why is it that you were in, on our radar the first weekend and you're on our radar now? What is it that's informing your decision-making in this process that keeps you kind of on the, on the leading edge there?
3: Well, I think some of us by chance. Uh, you know, we have this Arnold Classic coming to Columbus, and it comes every year, and they bring in tens of thousands of people from other countries. And, uh, you know, so we faced this issue about a close down before anybody else did. And, and so, when we made the decision to close the Arnold Classic, uh, it was just gut wrenching. No one had ever done it. Uh, seemed like a very difficult decision. In hindsight, it looks like it was a no brainer. But so, just by chance, we you know we faced that early, early on. But uh, you know, I've been involved in, in in public office for over forty years, and I made my share of mistakes. I will guarantee you that uh, sh- share of votes in Congress that I wish I hadn't had back. And as I thought about it, uh, you know, the mistakes that I've made have usually come about because of, of one of two things. Uh, I didn't dig deep enough and get the facts. I didn't talk to the right experts. I didn't really get, you know, gather all the information that I could gather. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's what we've tried to do throughout this pandemic. We've tried to listen to the experts. You know, I got on the phone and t- called people not just in Ohio, but people all across the country who I thought could help us. Mm-hmm. Uh, understand what was what was what was going on but the other thing I've learned over four decades of of, of public office and and also grown up in a family family uh, business uh, is that sometimes you just have to trust your gut instinct mm-hmm. and you know you need to gather the facts you need to get what you know pull all the information in but you need, you need to have the, the, you need to have the guts I guess to go ahead and do something when no one else is doing it Mm-hmm. And that's that for for anybody in public policy or anybody, in, I guess, anything else in life. That's always very, very difficult. But mm-hmm. my experience was when I didn't trust my instinct, when I looked out and said, well, here, I think that really should go this way. And I got you know most people out there who I respect saying something else and where I pulled back and gone with them. I've regretted it, frankly. So I, it doesn't mean I'm always right. But I think there's something to be said, at least for me. And I think for most people about, you know, study it, work on it, but then you got to trust your, your instinct. And my instinct Mm -hmm. was if we put put $5 million out on the table that we would get some takers. So that's what I, that was my instinct at least.
2: Well, that's great. Governor We know we're going to need to let you go, but we, I do want to ask you one last question, a little bit on a different topic. That's just sports analytics. Thinking about your state, you have some of the leading practitioners in their respective sports. You've got the Browns, one of the top, probably two organizations in the NFL on sports analytics. You've got the Cleveland Indians who for decades have been showing everybody how to do it. And you've got an outfit called professional football focus there in Cincinnati, who is about as good as it gets on sports analytics. What, you, you got any special interests around sports there, Governor? And you've got the, the, the Browns held the draft. What has had your attention on, on Ohio sports?
3: Well, I, I, I do, and, and, you know, we like sports a lot, and particularly like baseball, uh, and, you know, our our family actually owns a minor league baseball team in Asheville, North Carolina. Our son, Brian, uh, runs the team, and uh, we were actually – Fran and I were – down visiting them, had seen our grandkids down there uh, for for a while, and so had the opportunity to do that. But look, sports is big in Ohio. I mean, we're very proud of uh, proud of our teams and proud of the professionals that we have, and uh, it's just one of the, one of the things that makes Ohio just a, a fun state to live in, uh, you know, just a great state.
2: Well, we wish you the best with all that, sir. Both on the pandemic side and on the sports side, we very much appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely. Governor DeWine, he is the creator of the lottery, the first lottery that we know of in the nation on getting people to take their vaccinations. All right, gentlemen, any debrief on that conversation?
0: Yeah, I I want to jump in on the thing he said early, which was they noticed a big slowdown after the J&J fiasco, I think is the right way to look at it in retrospect. I don't think there was any um, good that came out of that outcome of, of pulling it.
2: So you're saying slow down, not just because the less vaccine available, but because of the public relations hit. and
0: the Absolutely. And in. In, in fact, it's interesting because I listened to an interview with someone on the committee to make that decision, a uh, Bloomberg um, radio and interviewed one of my college um, classmates was conducting the interview and posted it on our website and I listened to it. And the defense was that it was really a, tr- a defense of the CDC sort of vaccine um uh, kind of reputation that that they have to stop and when, to investigate potential problems, yeah. but I, I thought which which is fine for non wartime, if you will, um, not in the middle of a pandemic. You don't do that. You do that when you're when Percentage. you're introducing a vaccine when when there isn't an epidemic going out.
2: Right, right. Super interesting, Shane.
4: Yeah, I mean, one thing that it kind of occurred to me through the discussion is basically Audi's statement that. You know, you, you kind of said that you well maybe this won't actually increase the total number of vaccinations, just sort of the, the speed of it. It'd be interesting to see how you would kind of evaluate whether that actually had occurred or not. Like you, you'd like creating kind of a counterfactual where you I mean, you can there's simple comparisons for sort of like how many extra vaccinations did they get in the days following, you know, but but. Knowing how many of those sort of vaccinations that they got kind of early on with this lottery that would have eventually come in anyway, that's kind of an interesting sort of inference question, I think.
2: Yeah, it is, it is cool, and I, I mean, I, I I'm glad he challenged you on that, out because I I think it's a fair thing to push back on whether the lottery actually expands the margin. Well, I, I'm not well. claiming
0: that it doesn't. I just said that even, if, say, it even, even if it doesn't,
2: doesn't, even if it doesn't, okay. that's right. And that was, that was the point that he raised, which I think we hadn't thought about and sounds right. You know, a couple of things stand out to me that Bill Beck thing was interesting and <laughs> his connecting it to $15 million in free advertising. I mean, nobody's talking about that aspect of it. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's much bigger than any other aspect of it. Right. So we can argue about whether he gets more people than if he'd spent the same money on, on just, direct payments, but he wouldn't have gotten the advertising. And the advertising might have this knock-on effect of expanding again the impact. Um, the, the other thing that stuck me, struck me was when I asked him why he seemed to be at the leading edge early and late in the pandemic, and his first answer was chance. I always find that to be a sophisticated, wise reaction to that kind of question. And the, some of the most impressive people I've ever talked to or interviewed they they attribute some of their successes to chance, and that's the first thing he said. And i had forgotten that it was the golf tournament that that put him in that bad situation, and that's 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 one of the reasons he was in the national news right there in the very beginning was because they had the tournament. Anyway, I, and then he's got this baseball team. He's got he's got he's all Bill Vek. He's got a minor league baseball. I love team
0: it. In he's a family owns a team. Yeah. It's been it must have been devastation from for minor league ownership because they didn't have oh, Oh, geez.
2: I mean, I mean, those guys are, that's a heck of a, it's a fun business to be in, but it's a heck of a business to be in. All right, gentlemen, that is our conversation with Governor DeWine, governor of Ohio, the creator of this lottery. Their first time out on this lottery is going to be this week, this Wednesday, the day this show goes up, they will give away their first award for everyone who's been vaccinated. Okay. That was our interview with Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio and a little debrief afterwards super excited we had the chance to visit with him about the lottery they are kicking off the first of five installments of that lottery the day this podcast goes live on wednesday that has been the first quarter of moneyball we've got
5: you're listening to wharton moneyball
2: on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball two hours of sports analytics we used to say live on SiriusXM, pre-recorded on SiriusXM. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as is our habit lately. Cade Massey hosting this quarter with my buddies Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. You guys can join the conversation. We wish you would hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter at WMoneyball at WMoneyball is our handle on Twitter. Great way to raise questions, suggest topics, criticize us, whatever you got. You can also email us. It's our mailbag. We pick it up periodically. We love hearing from you. Again, questions, complaints, topics, whatever you got. The email address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. We are rolling into the second quarter here. We have another guest on COVID-19 related. It's a guest we've been angling for for a few months now. We started hearing about Yu Yang Gu as one of the best modelers out there. As you guys know, we've been watching models, making sense of models, critiquing models to some extent for more than a year now. And Yu Yang has risen to, you know, among those that people take most seriously. And so we're delighted to have a chance to visit with him in more detail. Yu Yang, welcome to the show.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me, Cade. And I'm glad to be here.
2: Glad to have you. Glad to have you. We... um, we, I think the first time we quoted you when you, it was back when you said something, path to normalcy. You said, here's a yeah. path to normalcy. Maybe we're not going to get herd immunity, but we're going to get high enough to see things drop off. You gave us a little bit of hope. Um, what, I think you were one of the first modelers to, to point out this, this source of hope. And we wanted to just dig into things a little bit more with you. Give, before we go too deep straight on the model, just give us a sense of where this modeling exercise came from in your life and how it emerged and evolved over the last year? And to what extent were you surprised to find people start pointing the world at you and your website <laughs> as a good source of information on COVID-19?
6: Yeah, that's a good question. So I, my background is I'm a data scientist by nature. My background is kind of computer science and statistical modeling. So I, I've been kind of building models for for a while now and uh you know when the pandemic hit i had some kind of extra time on my hands uh but you know but before that i was doing dabbling some like different uh job in finance and i was also doing some sports analytics roles mm-hmm. uh of course pandemic hit so i had some extra time i said you yeah, know why not kind of build a model see kind of where things are headed because at the time uh this was back in march 2020 uh right mm-hmm. you had you know, these different institutions, some saying, oh, yeah, we're going to get 2 million deaths by August and others said like, you know, 60,000 deaths by August. So that's like a huge range. Right. Uh, and so I just said, you know, wh- why don't I take a shot at this and see what not- type of numbers I get, uh, mm-hmm. if not just like, you know, for uh, other people, but just also just like for myself right, to see things are headed uh and then i just like you know since i'm gonna build it i might as well just put it on a website and see what happens and i certainly kind of didn't really expect it to take off the the way it did right uh it was more started as just like a personal project but i guess right like as more and more people start paying attention to it I just thought, you know, maybe I should, that you know, there's a need for people right like to, to follow kind of a, a data-driven kind of uh, model mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, that whose main purpose, at least my main purpose is, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be as accurate as possible. And, and mm-hmm. people seem mm-hmm. to really want to, to explore that.
2: Right. So by the way, the website is COVID-19-projections.com. COVID-19-projections.com. What, I'm sure your model evolved over time. I think everybody's did. But when you set out and started this thing, what tools were you using? Why was your model any different from the models that you just referenced, models other people were building?
6: Uh, yeah, I think I, the main thing for me was I just kept things as simple as possible. So, uh, honestly, right, like in in April, I you had other models using kind of lots of different sources, like, you know, cases, hospitalizations, population age uh mobility right and all of that stuff i looked at the data i just said you know all of that is too noisy i'm just gonna stick to using past deaths to predict future deaths no no other data source uh mm-hmm. and so like my right like my past experience with modeling suggests that like in noisy environments adding more data sources actually kind of hurt your accuracy so Mm -hmm. you just want to kind of stick with what's really important and for me i thought it was just deaths so i i I, for me i just kept things as simple as possible Mm -hmm. uh and i so i just used kind of python and and some numpy pandas and so just like built a model in like a couple days and kind of just rolled with that. And mm-hmm. for the most part, that turned out to, to perform pretty well and perhaps even better than kind of a lot of these other more complicated models.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so I, uh, I uh, jumped in on some not actual modeling, but more kind of personal investigations, if you will, and what's happening in our local area. Uh, I wrote some op-eds and I grabbed a lot of data. And one thing that I realized early on was the death data was terribly unreliable. Meaning that the a- different aggregators were not giving you when people actually died, but when the data was collected into a system. Um, so I noticed, for example, the Philly.gov, uh, if you will, the local mm-hmm. Philadelphia um, health department, they were doing wonderful tracking and they'd go back and they'd, they'd, they'd actually try to assign a death to the date it happened. And and it was it was radically different than what you were getting at some of the big. You know, the New York Times was providing a GitHub repository with, mm-hmm. with, and and I noticed that. And so I just kind of, I said, oh god, this is going to be a problem. Um, and 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 I did you did did, did you, what was your solution to this, or you just sort of recognized this was the least noisy of, of bad alternatives? How did you
6: approach this problem? Uh, yeah, no, I completely really agree with you. Like, all, you know, the, the data is very noisy. Uh, though with that said like it's it's very relative so death data is noisy but then you look at case data and that is right more many times even actually more noisier because then it depends on you know how much you're testing right if you're if you're not testing then it doesn't right like the cases you know don't you can have many people infected but not show up on a case number count at least for deaths it is relatively more kind of stable or consistent across states. Um, and so, uh, so that's kind of why I decided to stick with that, with using deaths than, you know, the cases or testing and things like that. And then the other thing is, um, right, like the, the date of death versus kind of date of report. And so the data death kind of will have kind of a huge lag, and in, in peop- you know, we're always going to be the data sources are always going to be kind of backfilling those data points. But w- what I use is kind of just the date of report. Uh, so, like the, your example, like the New York Times or Johns Hopkins or COVID tracking, they just right every day they just release kind of the number of deaths that are reported by each state on that day. And Mm -hmm. so I just use that data. So like the past reported deaths to predict future reported deaths. And for the most part, kind of like people just take kind of reported deaths as the, the kind of the de facto, like, oh, if 100 deaths got reported today, then, you know, people would just say, oh, 100 people died today. Of course, but we know that that's not necessarily the, the case in reality, right? Because reporting lags kind of right the, the true deaths. But we, we kind of just to make things simpler, we just use reported deaths as kind of a proxy for the number of deaths mm-hmm. on each
0: day. Mm-hmm. 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 One thing that I noticed was that um, in Philly, where they had really good data, you could see the, the second derivative the, of the death rate. Uh, well, of the deaths, which was the acceleration um, kind of come out earlier than when looking at reported. So, so I remember, I don't remember it was May, we had this big initial bump and then we kind of came out of it kind of around May, if, if my memory serves. By looking at the more accurate data, you at least in this one tiny little place of the country called Philadelphia, right. you could see that we really were we, we really were declining rapidly. Um, then, it, if you looked only at reporting, you, right. you it was still it was still looking flat. Um, so so that was I, oh, that's one of the difficulties that, that I kind of had, and I and we were just trying to do it locally. Um, imagine if you look at it more accurate, you can kind of see what the what the senses are. Can I ask you what did you what did you think you did well in all this? Because um, I don't want to talk about your forecast in particular I, I didn't particularly study it but but i have some observations about the, the the ensemble of forecasts that are out there how what did you think you did personally with your model that's say better than others
6: yeah uh well, well first uh i think to your earlier point in cases after like a certain point where, where like testing ramped up i think cases is a good predictor of kind of uh future deaths and leading right is a leading predictor i think just during the early months cases are just not reliable uh and then to your second point like what i think i did well um i think it's just more kind of like my experience past experience in working with real data and making kind of uh predictions uh you know for kind of real life applications uh, i think that is kind of uh, pretty valuable, like uh, ter- when you're faced with a situation where right, you're asked to make these predictions in real time. Uh, so you know, looking at kind of knowing what data sources to use, making your model as flexible as possible and as simple as possible, so you could quickly adjust to new information, to new data. Uh, and so that's right. That's something that I think is under undervalue that uh, like especially kind of in the academic community right where traditionally you don't right like the pace of how kind of your work isn't as important and also right in academia it's more about kind of uh you know getting many sources and putting together kind of uh a, a, a sophisticated model uh and kind of backtesting our historical data it might not be kind of be as quick, able to quickly adjust to new information. And so I think in, with that respect, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why my work, my model has done well. Uh, And I think like many, I'm not, I don't think like I'm special, particularly special in any means. I think like a lot of the, The people I've worked with in the past in like, say, finance right, or sports analytics, I think if they had a lot of free time in their hands and they put their head down to make a model, I think there's a good chance that they would they would do uh, fairly well as well. Uh, But of course, many people just didn't kind of have that opportunity.
2: That's, that's love the humility, Yi Yang. That's, that's, that's great. Listen, I like this idea that you think that because of your historical experience, making predictions, you were well-suited for this world. And in particular, you went with a simpler model that you could adapt more easily as new information became available. As you learned, you were more interested in making out of sample predictions and learning and going, as opposed to a bunch of backtesting all really interesting. Can you give us an example, of something that you didn't put in your model that maybe others did on, on that, that philosophy led you to leave out, um, that, that might've led you down the wrong path or constrained you in some way, had you included it?
6: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, one that particularly comes to mind is like mobility or like reopening. Uh, I think, um, you know, a year ago right, when we were having the whole debate about like states or should states reopen if they're reopening early. Right. I, at the time, like, I thought that kind of reopening was kind of a main driver behind kind of uh, you know future case growth, and, and and you know it is to a certain extent. But you know, at, at the same time, right, like uh, a lot of models used mobility in their models to show that oh like you know mobility has gone up and so therefore cases and deaths are also going to rise but for for many states it just it, right like that that didn't quite happen uh, especially like in the in the summer uh, so um so there was kind of that aspect and also kind of in the winter you had right like these uh different states kind of uh opening up opening up or having restrictions and and you know the, the 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 data that ended up going right that coming out right like not all states that I say were widely open had a severe wave compared to states that some states right didn't open quite as uh much but had us right, had a much severe, stronger wave so i think uh you know, like, I guess an example would be like Florida. (laughs) Um, You many, right. Like you had all the experts saying, you know, like because there's no restrictions in Florida that things are going to get really bad, but uh, you know, come the winter time, it wasn't, you know, they had a way, but it certainly wasn't anywhere near kind of what people were expecting versus compared to say like California, right. They, they were much kind of uh, more cautious with their kind of reopenings. And they also had a lot more restrictions and yet, Right. You saw like L.A. in December and that, you know, hospitals were were quite overwhelmed. So uh, I really kind of begs the question, right, like how much do right, these restrictions and interventions have right. an impact on COVID?
2: But Ying, so now you're at this very interesting issue in modeling about the role of theory. And one interpretation of what you've just suggested is that the theory was wrong. And so if you were more theoretically based model here, you didn't do as well. How did you decide how much theoretical basis to put in your model at all versus just, um, you know, some, some statistical learning of some kind. So for example, here's a simple one. I mean, to what extent did you use, you do have an infectious disease model uh, underneath everything, do you not? But that could be more or less complicated how important was it for you to use right. that? Was right, that? The,
6: right.
2: Is that the limit of the theory? Because it's a very general issue. And especially in a, in a machine learning world, a lot of people want to throw theory out.
6: Yeah. So I think actually one of the other benefits uh, of kind of, right, like me, my models are like, I don't actually don't have, right. I don't have a background in infectious diseases. And for me, to me, I actually think that ended up being a positive because I didn't have any of like, Prior any priors or misconceptions before it, I just started with a blank slate. So everything I'm doing, I'm only following kind of the data that is presented to me about COVID, right? So I didn't have any kind of prior knowledge about past viruses or what they do that can potentially skew my interpretation of of COVID itself. And so for me, I just kind of my mantra is always just like, follow the data, whatever the data tells me, I try to uh, follow it and adapt my model to it. And of course, there is going to be an infectious disease component to the model. But that component is going to always kind of specific to COVID itself. Uh, And so right, like I know, like, on the topic of like, restrictions, interventions, yeah, like, historically i'm sure there are plenty of examples showing that restrictions and interventions are helpful to stopping a virus or a pandemic but when when we look at COVID in the united states i just don't see i haven't been able to find any solid evidence showing that these restrictions and interventions are as effective as people make it out to be so so, let me me
2: just jump in real quick and i'll ask question to shane and adi this the I mean, how do you, so how would you characterize Yu Yang's ability to get away here with so little theory, I suppose. And here's a hypothesis. I know you're trying to get down. I, hypothesis is that because of the out-of-sample frequent feedback, out-of-sample nature of these predictions, it was a good learning environment is one is one possibility. And I, I like this, for example, sports betting has some of the same features. You put your money on the table every day, you learn real quickly how well your base model is. Exactly, model. exactly. And, and so- um and they they've said this historically about weather you know it's a great learning environment well in some sense this was a good learning environment and if you're making these out of sam- high frequency out of sample predictions you can probably get away with less theory i'm guessing but i'm curious your thoughts are you dying to get in
0: well the thing about theory is theory gives you an enormous advantage when you have very little data and it's and sometimes it's extremely important um and a lot of people would say to me uh, things like um how do we know this vaccine is going to work? It's, it's, uh, it, it, and offer these, these uh, questions about data which we haven't seen yet. For example, long-term side effects. And response would be, well, there really isn't any biological or medical theory that suggests long-term consequences, side effects are possible. There's no data, right? So that's where theory comes in and biology and medicine and infectious disease. The problem is with theory is if you're wrong with the theory in a in a key way it could lead you almost to ridiculous answers and a lot of the infectious disease modeling required um a homogeneity a lack of feedback um that just wasn't present in this virus we had massively different death rates massively different responses like i think for example why did florida do well through the winter because the people who were dying from the virus were locked up like like on their own volition they didn't have to but they just did every grandmother and uh, the living down in boca raton was never left their their room yet the the kids out in miami were having a very different experience and yet And that's a different response to, say, what happened in, say, California. So I think that was why you had not only do you have all this data coming in to kind of build quickly something that's workable, you didn't get trapped into some bad theoretical um, decisions that just didn't fit with this particular virus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: And and I'll say this might be kind of a weird kind of way to say it, but uh, I think I think focusing entirely on the data and maybe kind of focusing entirely on kind of like numerical kind of evaluations, like out of sample prediction, stuff like that. I think you tend to kind of get somebody with a large, larger amount of subject domain knowledge might actually be more tempted to start following down a lot of these kind of narrative routes for why things are occurring the way they are. And I think we a lot it, 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 you know this again the the spread of any disease and covid certainly being one of them is is complicated enough that one can create a whole bunch of narratives i mean why why florida i mean you just created one i'm not I saying sure it's wrong right <laughs> but you just created one for why florida did what it did versus california and i mean i think you know, if if you're just kind of focused on modeling the kind of trends, you're, you're less kind of hung up on these types of narratives. Where you know, in a with a complicated enough process, I think you can really kind of go down some rabbit holes that aren't necessarily fruitful, aren't necessarily replicatable.
0: You uh, uh, young, were you still um, were you up and still running? Uh, say like three months ago, when 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 Texas kind of very early got rid of its mask mandate to great fanfare in the press saying this was insane. Did you make a forecast yeah. then? I, I can't say that I knew what one way or the other what would happen because one thing that I learned was I couldn't make forecasts. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, um, but I did, the, I did feel that the people who were screaming that this was guaranteed to be a nightmare didn't have much uh, to go
6: on. Did you actually weigh in on that debate? Uh, yeah, I, actually I did. I, I, I was on Twitter and I see all these experts criticizing Texas and, and then, The funny thing is that uh, Connecticut, the next, like a few days later, and also announced they're going to relax, right? Drop all their business restrictions, Mm -hmm. but they kept the mask mandate. So, just because they kept the mask mandate, you saw very few experts criticize the governor of Connecticut, Mm -hmm. even though, right? Like, basically, it's the same thing, just minus the masks. So, I just pointed out kind of the hypocrisy and kind of in that. And how, right? Like you have experts basically like playing politics at that point, uh, because right, like with regards to masks. Well, there's like also no concrete data that shows that mask mandates are effective, uh, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, people who want to wear masks are wearing masks, and people are, who aren't who don't want to wear masks aren't wearing masks. So <laughs> the mandates itself at the end does very little. But, right, like,
2: is that, is that true? That's one that I mean, that's a hard one to let go of in terms of of my priors and my intuition. I think for a lot of people, it's hard to let go of. Yeah, I could
6: show point. you, like, uh, Do like, we
2: have that study. I mean, so you're, you're you're saying basically the mandates are ineffective because compliance is low, right? It's not that you're saying masks don't matter.
6: Yeah, yeah, okay. So mayor, there's, yeah, there's plenty of studies saying like masks are effective, but if you, the moment you mandate it, right? the issue is you have a lot of people that perhaps, right. Like think that masks are more effective at protecting themselves than they actually are. And then they go out and and engage in more risky behaviors, right. Which then actually drives up infection. So you have a kind of, and for example, when Texas dropped their mask mandate, then you suddenly have a lot of people who are more cautious about going out because they know that there are other people who aren't wearing masks anymore. And so that could actually reduce right, the infection rate. And so actually, you, if you look at the data, states like Texas and uh, I think uh, Mississippi and Iowa that dropped their mask mandates in March, they actually had, a, had lower uh, cases compared to states that kept the mask mandate yeah, you're you know, to through the last years. few months
2: you're trained as computer science, but that's a very economics. Uh, there's a long tradition in economics of this kind of argument. Sam Peltzman wrote a paper whenever seatbelts were regulated that people would drive faster. <laughs> that was, and I think he found evidence that that was true. And, and we've even had some sports analysts come up. and talk about risk homeostasis that, that people will adapt. And this is basically the argument yeah. you're bringing, which is, which is a nice one.
6: Yeah.
2: Listen, before we run out of time, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things. One Yours was one of only a handful of papers in a recent analysis of model performance. So I think of this as the IHME crowd, but I'm sure it wasn't just them that was doing this evaluation. They compared a bunch of different models and their purpose wasn't really to run a horse race between the models. The purpose was more to ask how well did modeling do, where did modeling do better? Where did modeling do poor? But I'm sure you as being one of the, I think only seven models that they evaluated, had a pretty keen interest in reading this. So This was the Nature Communications article that came out just a couple of weeks ago. Um, any thoughts on that evaluation or any thoughts on how models have done globally whenever you look at them kind of a year on?
6: Uh, yeah, I'm not too uh, – I mean, that paper was, writ- was written by one of the, the people the People who built the model, so I think they are inherently going to they be a a little biased towards their own model, right? Mm-hmm. I have I've wrote an evaluation of uh, a bunch of different models as well, uh, right? So, uh, and actually, if you talk to a kind of other many kind of other experts, you see that kind of the model is just didn't do as well as they made it out to be, <laughs> and that's actually one of the main reasons why I started my model is because I saw a lot of people cite their model, which turned out to be very flawed. So for example, right. Like back in, in April, they were citing that we would have only 70,000, 80,000 deaths by August, even though at that point we were already at 60,000 deaths with like 2000 deaths per day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, they, you know, so I, I, don't have too much comment on that. I think, uh, you know, different groups have different models and mine is just kind of one of them. And, you know, for the most part, uh, I would, I would look for an independent analysis of the model performances.
2: Yep. Fair enough. Listen, another modeling question that um, we talk about a lot on this show and I think you're sensitive to is the heterogeneity out there and you've been running 50 state forecasts and you see the differences in different states and different regions what what can we do about that what have we learned about that do you think the do you think epidemiologists have learned much about this 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 challenge of heterogeneity and the importance of it building it into models
6: uh yeah i mean it's it's certainly something to consider but it's very hard to model Right, because you can just boil it down to a couple parameters. Well, I got you could. There are models with heterogeneity as a parameter, but it's hard to know kind of exactly how important that is. Uh, and I'm sure many uh, epidemiologists are considering it. Um, for me, it kind of, I don't specifically kind of incorporate it the way right we think about it. But I think there is the way I think about it is I like as the the percentages of the population that is infected increases, the amount of susceptible individuals decreases at some nonlinear rate, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that does also kind of beg the question, right? When it comes to uh, things like restrictions and whatnot, is right? Like y- when you have restrictions, you 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 kind of reduce the number of infected individuals in the short term but that also leaves a wider number of individuals that are susceptible for a future wave right and then the future wave could be if it's in the winter right if it's a variant it could be more deadlier than say if it happened in the summer so that was something that i think people probably did not consider uh, a lot of especially kind of like public health experts may not have fully considered in the sense that right like we're all focus on kind of the short term goals. Oh, like how do we, you know, keep the cases and deaths as low as possible in the near term. But that may not always be the case that like keeping things low in the near term will also keep things low in the long
2: term. Interesting. All right. So listen, last, last question for you. We're gonna run out of time. Vaccinations. A lot of folks make this a straight political issue. I understand your numbers or your analysis looks at it a little differently.
6: Yeah. So uh, I think like in back way back in February, I was saying that, uh, yeah, we'll have kind of vaccinations will be available to everyone by April. And then, uh, you know, by summer, anyone who wants to get a vaccine can kind of walk into a pharmacy and get a vaccine. And after that point, right there, are is very little reason why we should have kind of further restrictions beyond the summer. And kind of, of course, back in February that people viewed it as optimistic. But now that we're in May, I think that's more and more likely to to be the case. And and I think, yeah, like vaccinations, a lot of people try to make it political. But if you actually look into the numbers, right, like it is, you know, wealthier, more educated states are more likely to have a higher vaccination vaccine acceptance rate right Mm -hmm. and so rather than make it kind of a blue versus red issue you know we we should do more in my opinion right to kind of educate in people in you know in across the country especially in kind of right traditionally maybe disadvantaged communities to kind of teach them the importance of getting vaccinated and showing them how we can, how they can get vaccinated or expanding access to vaccinations. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. we're, Mm -hmm. you know, hopefully on a good path towards, towards that path.
2: Yu Yang, thank you for spending some time with us today. Good luck with the work you've been doing. It's been influential and um, we hope that you keep it up and we'd love to hear about the things you do down the road, especially since we know sports analytics has been an important (laughs) part of your life. So we're going to have to have more conversations with you down the road. about. Yeah.
6: That. Yeah. Maybe down the road. Yeah. Sounds All good. All right.
2: Yu Yang Gu, you can follow him on Twitter. You can see his own website. He's got a website out there with his models. Um, the, his Twitter handle is at you. Yang Gu. His projections website is COVID-19 projections.com. Thank
6: yeah. you. Yu. Thanks for having me guys.
2: Absolutely. That is, has been another quarter and a first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us.
5: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. and We do it every week. We usually have the whole crew here. This is the only quarter this week we've got the whole crew here. Q3, blessed with Eric Bradlow. Adi, of course, Shane Jensen, Cade Massey hosting. Eric's had some responsibilities keeping him away from our discussion so far, but I'm thrilled, Eric, you're here because this is our only open mic segment. And as far as I'm concerned, it could be Phil Mickelson all day long in this next conversation. (laughs) Got to get the reaction. Got a 50-year-old winning a major. Let's talk about it.
0: That that up to the the previous um, eldest by two years, is that correct?
5: Yeah, a little over two years. I mean, for... It's one of those long-lasting records. It was in 1968. It was Julius Boros. So Boros uh, was 48 and a couple of months. Um, a lot of people remember, of course, Jack Nicklaus winning the Masters in 86, but he was it's easy to remember. He was 46 and 86. <laughs> a lot of people remember Hale Irwin winning the U.S. Open, maybe 1990. He was 45. Um, so Phil Mickelson's a couple weeks away from 51. And it was an amazing accomplishment. I mean, it's not only winning the PGA, it's been considered. We'll look at this over the years. Um, the strongest field ever. Ninety-nine of the top one hundred players played this PGA, so wow. we can. You know that's also amazing. Also, and by the way,
2: I, by the way, Phil wasn't one of those top one hundred. Right? Correct.
5: Right, he was not one of them. <laughs> and of course, you know, I hate to say it, but I mean, of Make all, if, if you want to win a major, he played with the last person you would actually probably want to play in the last pairing with, or maybe you, you know, would, is Brooks Kepka. Sunday? Yeah. So it's not like he was playing with Eric Bradlow or Shane Jensen in the last pairing. He was playing with Brooks Kepka. And by the way, people forget this math. But if Kepka had won, he'd have the same number of majors as Phil Mickelson. It's unbelievable. You talk about the pressure. Kepka would have five, and Mickelson would have had five. Now, of course, Mickelson has six, and it, it's, it, cha- it, it really just changes his career. It's the same number as Nick Faldo, the same number as Lee Trevino. And so all of a sudden now, Mickelson, you have to put him up there. And I hate to say, maybe Tiger will do it in his 50s, but he's always going to have that right now, the oldest person to win a major. And, and here's the exciting part to think about. Coming up in about three weeks is the one major he hasn't won, which is the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, which is his home course growing up as a kid. So why can't he win the U.S. Open? <laughs> well
4: because he's 50
5: (laughs) i mean i mean i I mean let's not bank
4: on him doing it again necessarily i I didn't say to uh, bank on it i just said
5: but by the way just to show you what the odds you know we're a statistics show so i think everybody knows he was 300 to 1 it was between 200 and 300 to 1 to win the major to win the pga um he's jumped to about 50 or 60 to 1 which by the way i don't have a problem with Like, you know, if you think of there being 100 players in a major and the average probability, therefore, is one is 100. Is he slightly more than the average player right now? I don't have a problem with him being slightly more than the average player, but not one of the top 25 or 30 players. I think it's about appropriately calibrated. But Mm -hmm. it gets to a point and, and love to hear everyone's thoughts about this. We talk about uncertainty all the time. Like, maybe there's no golfer That's really 300 to one or 500 to one. Given these are all professionals, these, you know, maybe we should all, I mean, I'd love to hear how Rufus thinks about it. We'll have to get Rufus on the show at one of these points, but maybe always bet the bottom 20, you know, maybe even though they don't win that often when they do win, you'll get a massive payday because the odds are just too long on these players.
2: So you don't mean no player. You mean no player qualified to play in a major.
5: Correct. Every player that's qualified to play in a major.
2: Well, Eric, let me add one dimension. um, And this is because I was thinking along the same lines after after Sunday. And that is volatility. So if if you took that, if you took the guys at the bottom of the field, you take the bottom quintile or whatever. You'd much rather have the most volatile of that bottom quintile than the less volatile.
4: Well, you want to talk about volatility? Well, you want you. Yeah.
2: So I was gonna you
4: want you want tournament to tournament volatility. You don't want inter tournament volatility. Okay,
2: so this this is actually you asked me what or intra
4: tournament what, volatility. You yeah,
2: asked right. what, what Rufus said. And so the, I, of course, I go to Rufus after, you know, whenever it, whenever it was Sunday night saying, Hey, how do you think? Because I start as soon as I start started thinking about volatility. And he had the same thought, Shane, because he's he's I shouldn't say too much because this is his this is his this is his, his work, but um this question it's easier to think about. It's the more traditional way to think about volatility is round around because that's just it falls right out. And what you really want is you want a little stationarity, you want some autocorrelation in these rounds. So you get tournament to tournament volatility. You want these guys who play up or down for a weekend as opposed to round around. And I don't, I, I, that, I think that's probably going to be something that I don't know. Maybe Rufus says he's played with it. He's had a hard time finding it. But it, I got to believe that. I mean, if it exists, it would be a real asset to bet. Well, dang, just to give you an example.
5: You, yeah. yeah, you want to talk about that volatility. I know you guys probably lo- heard the sap the same as I did. Of the 12 tournaments that uh, Mickelson played this year, how many top 20s does he have? Does anybody know?
2: I'm going to say zero.
5: <laughs> it's zero. Yeah, well, zero. One None. And he missed He missed five cuts. So he made yeah. six cuts, missed five, and nary a top 20.
4: And, and that's the so, uh, way... That that's one of the, the the cut is one of those struggles of trying to kind of get at this sort of tournament to tournament volatility because you're kind of truncating one end of this. Yes, that's right. You know, right. by the fact that if you are particularly bad at a particular tournament, you're out of there, you know. So um I, I understand why people think about volatility more round around, but it is interesting to sort of see if you could model somehow right. are there, is there a subset of players that kind of you know are either off or on but when they're on they are kind of consistently on at least on a week you know time span. Notice
2: how notice how complicated the story is right? Cuz we yeah, right. we don't like complicated stories and we start telling them. I'll give you another complicated one. So that's a that's I think that's a really interesting feature cuz I would hypothesize the volatility and in, in whatever proper form we might operationalize it. I'd hypothesize that it's undervalued in the betting market.
5: Suppose, Kate, okay, we, we just extended your quintile approach, which I like. Suppose we just used a heuristic, which said, I'm going to look at the bottom quintile, but I'm going to add two pieces of information. One is I can look at their variability, even in that quintile. I mean, there's people that are in the bottom quintile because they're just never good. I mm-hmm. mean, that's one possibility. The other one is I'll just add a simple indicator variable. Have they won a major? yeah so that means their peak i'm going to take i'm going to add two things: the variance and did they ever have a high peak yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm going to add that to the quintile i'm going to keep it simple, and i'm going to see what players emerge from that yeah. and i i who knows I'm sure look as you know, a Rufus people have done these types of I'll call it simple arbitrage strategies. If it was that yeah. simple a rule, somebody would have found it. but I'm just yeah. intrigued by that as a possibility mm-hmm. agreed yeah.
2: and this idea of have you done it before you're using it to reflect peak. It's also interesting to, to talk about whether it reflects something more complicated like ability to perform under pressure. So this is the other thing that I was, this is the first thing I was thinking about watching Mickelson play that last round. I had a different experience watching him play than I usually do when I'm watching someone that I'm pulling for. So I'm no huge Mickelson fan, but I wanted this to happen. It was just fun. So I was pulling for him. And usually when I'm pulling for a golfer on Sunday in a major, I'm nervous for that golfer. And I'm worried that he's nervous. And I don't know whether he can stand the pressure. And Mickelson, more so than anybody I can ever remember watching, I just wasn't worried about that particular feature. And part of it is because I know he's been – you know, he's played majors. He's won majors. He's been in Ryder cups, but also I know he's a big gambler. He likes to play for.
5: Absolutely.
2: I think he loves that moment. This is like the distant stupid story I'm telling from, from out here. He seems to like that moment more than the average golfer does. And did y'all, did y'all have any of that? And is that a real thing or am I just telling stories?
5: Well, I just always thought, you know, what's his loss function if it didn't happen? He still got five. Mm. People will say, "Yep, the the old gunslinger went for it again." A- and, you know, he'll be like, "Yeah, well, I still got 500 million in the bank. How bad can this be?" I just I agree with you. The look on his face the entire time. Yeah, of course everybody's nervous trying to close out a major. But I mean, no, I I actually wasn't worried that he was going to choke or anything like that. I just thought it was a hard day to play golf. There's variability um, but no, I didn't get the sense that the moment, even at age 50, almost 51 was going to be too big for Mickelson. He just seemed, he seemed ready. He did. And, he seemed ready.
4: And it's fascinating to me because again, the first half of his entire career, he was, you know, kind of a famous choke, right? Yeah. I mean, like he, he, he was defined by the fact that he was this like, you know, really good golfer who just couldn't put it together for the majors. And I mean, he had some pretty epic. Do you know, you know. what, it,
5: Shane, do you know? The, I mean, I know the number. Do you know the age at which, which he won his first major?
4: No, but I would guess it had to be mid-30s or something. It, like I think that. it was
5: 32 or 33, because yeah. I think he won his first major mm-hmm. in 2003 or 4. And we can do math, 18 years. He's 50, yeah. 51 now. So you're right. I mean, But he's been on tour since he was 18. So yeah. he played 13 years, and he was known as the big choker. Yeah. And now he's got six.
2: I wonder how much of that is choking versus his game, and high variance and it just didn't it didn't work or maybe maybe some interaction between the two because they did talk about on the telecast Sunday that he's he's learned to kind of choose his spots a little more safely. And you might you might even bring Scott Fawcett into this conversation and see if it if, if that applies as well. You
5: know what it also reminds me of, it, it, it's a different analogy, but in you know, when my son, my middle son, who's a big squash player, like he can hit winners against anybody. But what people find is and similar to golf, in Mickelson's old style, you can't hit enough winning shots playing that aggressively for seventy-two holes. In mm. squash, over five games You'll take the tortoise versus the hare. You know, this one person comes out and starts hitting winners. All right, let's. I've never seen anybody do it for five straight games. It just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And the same thing has to be true in golf, which is sure. Mickelson can. Well, he did a couple of weeks ago. He shot sixty-three or sixty-four. He was leading. I forget which term. Maybe it was the Valspar. And his last three rounds were seventy-four, seventy-five, seventy-five. Mm-hmm. And so he had one great round, and then. It didn't happen. I actually hmm. I didn't even think he was playing that aggressively. That was the part that seemed great. I I I think he well, I, well, I don't well,
4: think he was. Here, here's a narrative for you. What if late career Phil Mickelson is actually more successful because his 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 kind of physical abilities eroded, you know, just due to aging to the extent that he couldn't be as risky as he was theory. in his <laughs> earlier career. Great. I mean, theory. we usually we usually think of, you know we usually talk about age and its negative effects on on golf or tennis as being, well, what it affects is again, your consistency. And so it's hard to string together those four great days in a row or four good enough days to win a tournament row. But maybe in his case, you know if you kind of take that gunslinger mold or whatever that are just kind of much higher risk players maybe tampering some of that risk just due to kind of physical aging actually is, is advantageous i don't know i, I think wonder if you f-
2: could see that in the data um, i wonder if you could see different game management as a function of experience and obviously you'd see different game management once your physical skills kind of forced it on you deteriorated and forced it on you but i wonder if what you would get just from sheer experience I mean, that's Fawcett's claim that's, he named his company decades because his idea is you played, you play better game management. It advances your game decades. You get what you would get from experience, but I haven't seen the study that shows that that's the case that people do actually manage their game differently with experience.
5: The one thing I thought that was interesting is, I mean, of course, no one 51 or almost 51 has the same, you know, uh, stamina and lots of things that they had with 25 last time. I'm pretty sure what I'm about to say is true. I think he had the longest drive of the week. Now, that's no. the part he did, longer than Deshambeau. So there was a hole, and Kepka and Gary Woodland. There was, I forget which hole <laughs> it was 13 or 14. They showed his drive. He hit it 366 off the tee. And I'm not saying by a lot, but like so, so Deshambeau okay. on the same hole was 364. Yeah, now, by the
2: way, wind? was it wind, Eric? I mean, there was a lot of wind out there at Kiowa. Uh,
5: right? They're all playing the same windy hole. I, I don't know. Maybe it was wind, but all I'm saying is he hit a drive 366. He was playing with Kepka. He outdrove Kepka at the same time on the same yeah. hole. I'll say that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think he, Shane, he sees your physio- physical deterioration and raises you at a 360 yard drive at Kiowa. Um, a, a, a couple of uh a couple of thoughts that came out of this were the age thing i mean if i had to it's you just said boris was 68 so 53 years 48 record,
5: 48 oh in 68 yes, yeah, 68,
2: 68. Yep. so 50 53 years 53 years this record stands what do you want to make the over under on how long it it stands now how long does phil hold it so i'm going to give you an over under and y'all take y'all tell me how calibrated i am I'm going to say that record will be broken again within 11 years. Over, under.
5: I thought you were going to say the number 10. I so. thought it was
2: too. I tweaked it at the last minute.
0: <laughs> yep. Should we, uh, should we all weigh in? Uh, yeah. In order here? I'm happy to start. I know the least. Um, so I'm going to go with under only because mm. all the other sports are seeing this great advance in average age. Um Uh, I shouldn't say all the other sports, but you know, you have Tom Brady in football, you have, you have great players. Tennis is lasting forever and golf. You would imagine is the sport that you can last the longest. So um, I'm going to go under. Can
4: I ask a follow-up question? How old is Tiger Woods? 45. I'm going to go under as well. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I hear you fellas. Uh, Eric, I'll adjust I, I, the line if you go under. Also.
5: I'm, I'm right on the fence here. I'm right on the fence. Um, here's the thing I will say the record, by the way, no one. I did not say, by the way, he's the oldest one to win a tournament. By the way, that's Sam Snead. And yeah. Sam Snead was 52 and changed when he won a tournament. And also just to remind everybody. And this, this bothers me to this day. It doesn't bother me, but it disappoints me because of how much of a fan I was of his Tom Watson In 2009, was a seven-foot putt away from winning the British Open at age 59. 59. And by the way, he hit what many consider the greatest golf shot of his life. He just got unlucky. It bounced over the green. He chipped it to seven feet. He missed it. It was a three-hole playoff with Stuart Sink, who, by the way, at age 46 or 47, has won two tournaments this year. That's right. But, so this- how can I go over when Tom Watson, just 11 or 12 years ago, at forget 50, 59, yeah. we could be saying, and then we'd be saying infinity. No one's ever <laughs> going to break Tom yeah, Watson's I, record.
6: Uh,
2: you know wouldn't. One, of, <laughs> one of the most profound sports-watching moments of my entire life. And I was trying to recover how old Tom Watson was. We were talking about it at lunch today, actually. You know, you talk about that seven-footer he missed to win it. That was the worst looking putt I've ever seen in all my life of watching professional golf. Yep. And I understand why it was so bad because it was the most extreme moment in sports I've ever watched in my entire life. That would have been the most, that would have been the most extreme accomplishment in my, in my lifetime. And he, and he felt it because that was one ugly putt. Um, all right. So we think probably under, yeah, this I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it? That the record was stand for 53 years and now we think it's going to go within 10.
5: Well, another way to think about it, here's another way to think about it, which is more, let's call it micro than macro. So for this to happen in the next 10 years, we can all do math. It better be someone that's at least 40 right now. Right. Can't happen the next 10 years unless it's someone at least 40 or 41 right now, because that person won't be old enough. So now let's think about who could that be? So there aren't actually a lot of people in their 40s right now who have actually won a major. So it would almost have to even be their first major. Like, I'll give you a few names. Justin Rose, I believe, might be in his early 40s now. He's won one major. Um, well, Tiger Sting. Woods
0: is the most obvious. Yeah, no, no,
5: Ti- if he can come <laughs> back, Tiger Woods. Stuart is Jasper still still uh, playing?
0: How about no. people in their 50s now?
5: Parnovic, by the way, never won a major.
4: Well, yeah, but I, I would assume he's in that age. Brad. I, I sort of associate him with kind of
5: early. Well, t- Matt just put on the screen, Phil himself, right? Who's yeah. to say Phil won't win another one. No, I'm just <laughs> saying, you know, or someone older than him, you know, maybe, yeah. I don't know, Vijay yeah. Singh, Bernard Longer. Bernard Longer. I don't know. Yeah, come on. It's got to, I mean, I'm, I'm voting on, but Bernard I'm saying Longer. it's it. Well, put it this way. That would be an even greater remarkable feat. If it was someone's first major and it was over age 50.
2: So where are you on Woods and what's the latest on Woods? We were talking again about this at lunch and we were thinking about the Ben Hogan post auto crash recovery and he won something like five of his majors after that big auto accident. And he was not young. I mean, he was in his upper, he was like upper thirties when he had that wreck. And that was, you know, uh, almost, that was 80 years ago or 75 years ago. So that was, you know, that's like late forties now. Maybe Woods still has – I mean, tell me Woods won't be motivated. Tell me Woods won't take motivation from the Hogan story. Tell me Woods won't be motivated by Phil Mickelson having just won this thing. I mean, what, what probability do you put on Woods winning a major now that we've, it's, we've learned that 50-year-olds can do it?
5: That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, as everyone knows, I'm a huge Tiger fan. I've been very positive about Tiger – I don't see this. I'm not convinced because of the back trouble that he... Forget his legs, which is obviously the major damage in the car crash. I'm not convinced his back would have been good enough for him to win another major uh, going forward because i don't think he can play enough to, you can't just show up at a major even tiger woods and win the major you have to play competitive rounds up to it you have to be able to practice properly and so i didn't think prior to i thought he was done prior to the accident so i am gonna put i don't know less than five percent i would take a 20 to 1 bet against him at this point mm-hmm.
4: I, the, I, would, I I I can't remember what I said previously when we talked about this, but I, I I'm I'm going to go more like ten or fifteen percent. But I don't think Phil winning kind of moves the needle that much for me because my ten or fifteen percent was based on Watson coming within a putt of doing it anyway. I mean, I kind of count you know I count that as an occurrence of it can happen anyway, even though he right. did bomb that last pot. I mean, that Watson doing what he did, I think still succeeded in proving to me that somebody at that age range can win a tournament.
2: That's wise. So, That's wise. And That's so, wise. um,
4: and so, you know, I, w- I would say
5: 10 or 15%. Maybe,
2: but let's, let's do
5: a little math, Shane. Let's also do another form of math we can do. Let's just say there's, we all, we know there's four majors a year. Yep. Let's assume he's not going to play for another two years. Okay. So let's maybe let's just say he doesn't play. So how many more majors can he play? Can he play 20 more majors, 25 more? Oh, yeah. So oh, so yeah. now right. you have to say he's got to at least have an expected value of one. He's got to have at least a 5% chance, 20 to one, roughly in any major he plays. That's why I think it's an overestimate. I don't think he mm-hmm. can play it. He'd, I'll use Adi's math. N times P. He doesn't have <laughs> yeah, enough yeah. base rate. Not enough N, not enough P left.
4: You no, know, and I'm I'm not arguing N times P equals one worth Tiger. I think it's more like, I, I just, you know, maybe it's like, 0.1 or 0.15 or something like that
5: well that's true but, you can be a lot lower because you're talking you're not talking about an expectation you gave a probability less than a half you gave a small probability so uh, listen that's still fellas possible. that
2: pga has rarely given us as much lo- uh, fun as it did this time and it's one of the great things about having it in may instead of its usual august spot we've got the u.s open right in front of us anything you're now looking forward to in particular does it kind of rejuvenate your enthusiasm for watching this tournament what what about the U.S. Open and Torrey Pines is on your mind
5: Phil Mickelson six times runner-up playing on his home course having just won the PGA that's my summary nothing <laughs> yeah, else key interests key me that's nothing else interests me. me. okay
2: oh probability he makes the cut because I'm, I'm I'm short I'm short Phil's performance at Torrey Pines
5: one-third
0: only one,
2: one third. Well, well, what is it, what
0: Base rates, base rates, please. How many people make the cut?
5: No, no, it's higher than that. So his base rates, probably half the people make the cut roughly. 20 so percent. I'm going to say 20 percent for film making the cut. You think so, he's drinking too much wine before up until then? I mean, he's I mean, well,
4: I, mean I, I mean, how many cuts has Phil made? I, I mean, yes, he's made half
2: majors in the last like,
0: all right. So you saying you're saying you'd take three to one. <laughs>
2: Yes, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. All right, good fun. I love that we, we we talk about the glory of Phil Mickelson for 30 minutes, and then we all shorty making the cut at the U.S. Open. All right, guys, that's been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Have a great interview with Sam Ventura of the Pittsburgh.
5: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball.
2: On Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Traditionally, our interview segment, at least traditionally since COVID hit in March 2020. This quarter, this week, Sam Ventura. Sam is the Director of Hockey Operations and Hockey Research for the Pittsburgh Penguins, the famed NHL Pittsburgh Penguins. He's also an affiliated faculty member at Carnegie Mellon, their Department of Stats and Data Science, which is one of the real homes of sports analytics. And he's an advisor to all Carnegie Mellon sports analytics initiatives. That's quite a role. So all, all of them, all of them are Sam's. Sam, welcome to the show. It's been a long time coming. We are delighted to have you.
1: Long time listener, first time caller. Thanks. Thanks for having (laughs) me on.
2: (laughs) Well, you definitely win the prize. We talked to a lot of folks in a lot of places and you win the prize for best background in your office for a sports analytics show. We see banners hanging back there, Pittsburgh, Penguin, Championship banners, whether it's conference or overall, I can't quite tell. I see glass and rafters that make me think you can look out onto some ice. That looks like a fun place to work, Sam.
1: It is. It is. They gave, they gave the analytics guy the best office uh, in the entire building. So,
2: I think maybe you should be teaching my negotiation class. You've got, you did something right on the way in there. You landed that kind of office. Listen, man, we, we, uh, as, as you've told us in your diplomatic way, yeah, word about to buzz a little light, a little light on hockey, and we're trying to make right today, Sam. As we've we've already got some teams eliminated, we we want to get the playoffs kind of up and running before we dove in too much. But I mean, shoot, we already missed some of the most important players. But we want to get kind of up to speed with someone who knows something about hockey, and and you're the literally the first person that came to mind. So thanks for jumping on. Before we get into the playoffs, can we just talk a little bit about hockey analytics? And I feel like I need to get a, a refresher kind of periodically on where the sport is also the sports moving the analytics are moving but how would you describe the state of hockey analytics especially relative to analytics and other sports you have great view into the other sports especially through Carnegie Mellon where would you place hockey and how would you even characterize hockey analytics relative to we talk more about football basketball baseball a little golf a little horse racing where, where is hockey
1: yeah, well, I mean, hockey analytics is very different from analytics and other sports. I mean, you think about baseball as being the first sport to really adopt analytics uh, publicly, anyways. Um, you know, baseball is filled with discrete events and, you know, relatively more scoring events, relatively more, uh, you know, just actions that are happening throughout the course of the game. It's easier to attribute any action that happens on the field to individual players. So it's easier to assign credit and blame in baseball In hockey. The sport is just so fast moving and continuous um, that it makes it a lot harder to attribute credit and blame for the purposes of player evaluation. Um, And so those are some of the challenges that we try to deal with on a day-to-day basis here. It's also different from, you know, like, like basketball, for example, where you have so many scoring events in hockey, you know, there's only six goals, per game on average.
2: Well, that's kind of the right comparison, right? Because basketball, it's about the same number of people. It's continuous. Um, and and so by that, but by doing that comparison, we can kind of see some differences. So the first one that comes to mind, you've just named, which is, wow, there's a difference in scoring. Uh, and and that's, since score is what matters, that's got to make it harder, much harder in hockey. The other thing is just, can you imagine basketball being played with like the missed passes that happen in hockey? Can you imagine all the like, Misses and dribbles and, and bounces off people's hands and stuff if basketball looked <laughs> like hockey. So that kind of messiness, if you will, which is inherent to the game, even at the highest levels, also must make it more challenging. Um, how would you say the, how would you say the level of sophistication is in hockey versus basketball? Because another dimension we can characterize sports by is the extent to which they've bought into sports analytics, the extent to which they're investing in people Um, what the, how big the community is, like, where is that relative to basketball?
6: Yeah.
1: I mean, I think if you wind it back over the last 10 years and you look at just what data was available in these different sports um, the, the data available in basketball, you know, was at the play by play level and it was the same in hockey and in basketball, you saw methods like regression adjusted plus minus uh, sort of take hold and be the primary way of evaluating players in the early 2010s, mid 2010s. Shane and I actually collaborated on a paper that took some of those ideas and and applied them to hockey. Uh, But the way to do that was a lot more complicated than just throwing it into a standard regression model. You know, we had to kind of add some bells and whistles and and do a a more computationally intensive analysis to estimate all these player effects that you would get out of that kind of model. So moving forward, you know, now that we have player tracking data in both the NBA and the NHL. Um, I think the field has been leveled a little bit and that, it, you know, in, in hockey, we're able to start to um, try to quantify specific player skill sets as opposed to just general player impacts. And so I think that's really where the focus is um, in the modern NHL, um, you know, just with the, the changes and what kind of data is available.
2: So let's let's stay with that for just a second, and, and Shane's trying to jump in here, and you just referenced research with him. But let me just stay with it a little longer, just to understand the, the lay of the land, because you just talked about two very different kinds of models, and one of the things that hockey should claim in the great sports analytics battles for you know who, who made contributions, hockey's plus minus has been a big player in other sports, and I mean they, they came my 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 impression is that it came from hockey. That's a top-down, you just referred to it as player impact. It's a top-down way of looking at um, what a player does. And then what we can do now with motion tracking in all these sports is very much bottom-up. And we can build up, like, what does the guy do? We may not know the impact. In fact, that's one of the big challenges in modeling is, okay, we can see what he does, but we don't know if it matters. We don't know how much it matters. These are very different approaches in sports analytics. And I don't is it fair to say one is not necessarily ascendant it's that or or one is not necessarily more important. Is that they're complementary? Is that fair? And, and let me stop there. I've got more questions because plus minus is such an interesting topic, but how do you think about top down versus maybe it is bottom up is ascendant because of technology these days, bottom up is ascendant, but my God, we're never going to model that all the way, Sam, we don't have the degrees of freedom, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about the point you just made, you know, which I agree with is that, the people who come at the game from more of a scouting lens tend to take a bottom-up view, right? Like that's the way they're evaluating players. And I think that that difference in approach is probably the source of most disputes between people who are more stats oriented versus more, you know, eye test oriented. Okay. Um, So I think the gap in that sense is also closing, you know, because I think in the last five or 10 years, most of the analysis that that's been done in hockey has been, more top down, to your point, and now that you know we're able to do more of these bottom up analyses, um, I think it it allows you to sort of speak about player evaluation from the perspective, like a similar perspective as the way a scout would.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, where where do the when and where do these things meet? One of the things that I've been surprised by is I think Namita might have said this to me at some point. I was like, can we just use some plus minus to suss something out, or maybe I want to use a quick example. She's like you never can say definitively, even with plus minus, eight, even with all the shifts in hockey, you never get a very reliable number on a guy's contribution. If you only look at plus minus, which is what, for those who may not know, it's what happens on when that guy's on the ice versus what happens when that guy's not on the ice. So it's very like, that's what you care about. You care about goals in the net. You care about winning. So that you're observing it directly, but, you're not observing all the factors on the ice that contribute to it. And Namita, if I'm remembering this, I don't want to, it's not, it's not Namita's fault that this is wrong. It's my bad memory. But I was surprised at how tough it is. Like you need, you need like seasons of data in order to say anything very reliable, even in hockey where you get all those shift changes. And so you have a lot of observations.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm fine with blaming Namita for anything (laughs) uh, that we, that we can think of here, but uh, maybe for the listener's sake, I mean, some of the flaws with plus minus are. You know, I mean, the biggest ones are that it just doesn't account for things like goaltending. It doesn't account for things like teammates, things like what opponents you're playing against. Are you being used in the defensive zone or the offensive zone? So there's a lot of flaws in that metric um, that we've tried to address, uh, you know, by accounting for all these contextual factors and trying to figure out what a player's individual impact is on, on game outcomes. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. And I, if I can just come in, I think another issue with plus-minus is in hockey specifically. Is again, it is obviously tied to this relatively rare scoring actual event, right? Whereas so much of I think um, performance in hockey is about the creation of scoring opportunities, and so I think I've 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 come around to sort of almost think that the actually the best analog to hockey. In the other sports is actually soccer. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously hockey is mm-hmm. in a much more constrained surface and it's much faster. But again, the number of actual scoring events is relatively low, but there's a ton of kind of work done to create scoring opportunities. So I think, I think really one of the cutting edges, I really kind of see is you know trying to estimate things like how much players create lanes or create space around them through their actions, and that's mm-hmm. really where I think a lot of kind of advanced current current advances are ongoing in soccer. Uh, so I kind of you know I I, I guess. Mike, to put it in terms of question, like, do you kind of also agree that sort of like, the, you know, trying to estimate things like creating space or or reducing space in the case of defensemen, et cetera, or creating lanes of scoring, et cetera, are those kind of where hockey analytics is kind of
1: moving right now? I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think there is one really important difference between hockey and soccer, and that's that uh, in soccer – teams tend to have possession for long stretches in a row. So maybe, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, they'll have possession the, the entire time passing back and forth in hockey. You know, a, a single team possesses the puck for, you know, probably on the order of 10 seconds at a time. And so there's so many possession changes that happen in hockey and what happens when the possession change? Well, there's a loose puck and then there's a, a battle mm-hmm. for the loose puck. And, you know, you get into skill sets that are a little bit less, uh, less soft and more involving physicality and effort and and things like that. Things that you tend to see more uh, often in the playoffs than in the regular season as well. So, um, so I, I do think there's your point is a good one, but there are some key differences that mm-hmm. make hockey uh, sort of a unique animal when when analyzing it through that lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: I want you just said effort and playoffs, and we got to come back to that. But Adi's been trying to get in here, so let's grab Adi real quick.
0: I just I have several a meta question for you, Sam. In in the three kind of major American sports other than hockey, baseball, football, and and uh, basketball, there's a each of them have a almost a well known publicly you know, communicated what I call money ball moment where analytics has really changed the game. Baseball, there's a bunch from on base percentage to the to uh, no stealing. Basketball, the three point revolution and opening up with space. Football, whether it's just not. You know, running less, passing more, fourth down conversions. Is there something? Is there anything in, in hockey I could I could say um, that analytics has changed hockey, or something I can point to that analytics that is visible to to the public? They might obviously there's behind the scenes stuff, but something that that, that, that is public.
1: Yeah. I, I wish I could say the Penguins back-to-back Stanley cups in 2016 <laughs> and 2017, but my role was uh, pretty minimal <laughs> at that point. Um, you know, it was probably, if you go back uh, a couple years before that, there was a Toronto Maple Leafs team that, um, you know, most public hockey analysts were saying was, was overperforming their, uh, their game results. And, uh, they had a, a somewhat monumental collapse in the playoffs mm. that year. Uh, I think they blew a four to one lead in the third period um, to, to lose in game seven. Um, and so, you know, that was sort of a, a moment where, you know, everyone could sort of point the finger and say, look, we were right. You know, even though it was a totally random improbable outcome <laughs> that led to that being right. But um, you know, the fact that it was Toronto and the fact that people had sort of made this prediction, uh, okay. was, was sort of a Moneyball moment in that sense. Has there some, been some
4: aspect of like kind of in-game strategy that analytics has kind of changed the kind of strategy on? And the kind of things that popped into my mind, but you would know better than me if it's actually, Power you know, if there's England? real advances in this era. It's it, things it like pulling pulling the goal like you know like there has been a lot of kind of there's certainly a lot more experimentation i feel like these days in terms of like when one pulls the goalie to try and overcome like a, a lee a, a deficit and also like you know kind of face off you know like potentially having like a couple centers out there for face off in case one gets tossed out etc so i don't i don't know if any of those are particularly analytically motivated but
1: yeah. I mean, the pulling the goalie ones is, is an easy one, right? So if you know each team's goal scoring rates at five on five and you know, their goal scoring rates, when the goalie is pulled, you can solve for the optimal time in which to pull the goalie whenever you're down by a goal or whenever you're down by two goals in order to maximize your chances of tying the game. Um, so that, I mean, that's something that, you know, people have looked at over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And if you look at the, the average time at which the goalie is pulled, um, you know, it's it's increased from somewhere around a minute to a minute twenty, all the way up to you know in the two minute range uh, these days, depending on if it's a one goal lead or a two goal lead.
6: Okay. Um,
1: there's been some other work done. You know, I mean, one that comes to mind is the work from Eric Tolsky on uh, zone entries. So, you know, the dump and chase strategy was a very popular strategy, uh, you know, in the '90s and early 2000s, uh, and even beyond that. Um, and his research showed that. Uh, controlled zone entries. So so rather than dumping it in trying to carry it over the blue line led to more offense on average. Um, and so that was a, a big result um, from the Sloan Sports Conference uh, you know, about five or ten years ago.
2: Con- continuing that line of thinking, Sam, are there do you see differences in the way teams play that are related to how quote, analytically sophisticated the organization is thought to be?
1: Uh I would, I would say yes, but you have to look hard enough and you have to know what you're looking for. Um, so, so, I mean, there are things that I think our organization does uh, that maybe uh, if you, if you didn't know what we were doing, you wouldn't really see it in the data. Um, you know, I, being extremely vague right now.
2: But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Um, okay.
2: That's fair yeah. enough. So you say that's discernible, but it's subtle. Um, what about on the personnel side? So We're talking in-game stuff and in each sport, there's kind of an in-game side of this whole world, and there's a personnel side of this world. And I assume that that's active and ongoing, and you've seen some inroads, and it's still hard. How would you characterize analytics in, on the personnel side?
1: Well, it's made huge strides uh, in the last five or ten years. Um, and, and you definitely see that coming out in the, the player selections that, that a lot of teams do in free agency and in the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what, one of the easiest things to think about is just, uh, the size of hockey players and that the league has gotten shorter and lighter over the last you know, right? 10 or 20 years. Okay. Um, and so there's a little bit of a, a struggle there of, you know, it, it, how short is too short, how light is too light. And the, these are questions that get asked, um, all the time, but, you know, certainly, uh, I think the league as a whole has moved towards more uh, skilled and fast players as opposed to the big and tough players. Um, we could argue about whether or not that's good or bad, um, but you know certainly that's been something that's happened over the last 10 years or so.
2: Have you seen more consensus on which players to draft? I think if you talk to guys in Major League Baseball, they will say – everyone's kind of chasing the same guys now that it's, you can almost see the guys that are more, the teams that are more model based because they all go after the same players. Have you seen anything like that consensus grow in hockey?
1: Well, I I can definitely tell you that there are, you can, you can, you can decode what a team's strategies are at the draft by looking at their picks and sort of figure out which ones are using more of a quantitative approach Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. otherwise. But um, I, I would say the NHL draft is just, it's it's a very challenging uh a very challenging project for nhl teams because you're drafting players at age 17 and 18 years old and then they don't play until they're 23 or 24 and so you're really you're making a prediction about what's going to happen five or six years from now as opposed to the na the nfl draft where you're drafting you know 21 22 year olds and they're going to play in the league the next year so it's it's a really challenging problem and so um
2: it sounds more like baseball in that way. Even baseball, some of the guys they're drafting are college guys, but they're at least considering guys at the high school level and, and hockey, man. Get, they, you start pushing way back in there. You know, Sam, that raises a third front. We've talked about in-game analytics. We've talked about personnel analytics. But there really is a third one, and that's development. And baseball has really led the way uh, in the last, whatever, five, six years. When I thought about it when you said you were drafting these 18-year-old kids and they're not going to make the big league until, you know, 22 my impression is most of the development happens when they're kids. And once they hit the big franchise, they're like, we're not, we're not working on anything anymore. We're just playing. So you've got these three or four years with them. Where's hockey on development. So just to be plain baseball, you know, they're teaching guys precisely how to spin. They're evaluating exactly arm movements, same with swing pass, all that stuff that's happened in baseball. Is there any analog in hockey to that?
1: Well, certainly less than baseball. I mean, in baseball, it's it's a relatively easier problem. Yeah, it's and not fair. Mean, they're static, They're standing still. And,
2: yeah. yeah, totally.
1: Make your arm move faster. Make your bat swing at a different plane or angle or whatever. Um, that's hilarious. I so think he's are, talking
2: smack. I think that's, a, I, that's an NHL. I can see
1: Audie squirming in his chair right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, it, just in hockey. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, the the things that go into being to improving your play on the ice. Are not so easily reduced to a single bodily movement you know what I mean and so from that perspective development's happening more on the mental side of the game so you know just be, you know being a better defensive player being able to see the ice in the offensive zone more but these are things that are more I would say coachable from a mental perspective as opposed to coachable from a physical perspective
2: well, at a meta level, to what extent are franchises interested in that? To what extent is that a front for analytics right now? It's we're going we're to change players. We're going to use analytics to advance their skills. We're going to use them as a part of the developmental process.
1: Yeah, well, it, the hardest part is that there's not data on that goes back far enough for you to make any sort of grand conclusions about what works mm-hmm. and what doesn't. And so I think a lot of teams are in that exploratory phase right now where they're trying to figure out what might work. Um, but, but it's sort of, uh, you know, certainly behind where baseball is just, you know, because of the lack of information
2: that makes sense. But it does seem like it's an opportunity that exists in, um, hockey that doesn't in the NFL, for example, because you do have the minor league era with these players, these young kids now, um, but you know, I'm super sympathetic to the way you characterize, you know, versus baseball or golf, you know, golf has the same thing. It's all static. You can really break it down. Sam, uh, listen, I, I, I got to give you my fantasy request for all of sports analytics. Here's my fantasy request. And you can, you can deliver this. You can come back and talk to us next week with the data, please. We, we talk about effort and effort seems so important in hockey. And then we talk about playoff hockey and it feels different. And you talk about overtime playoff hockey and it's different again. And what feels different, I think, is the perceived effort of the players. But you guys have the ability to know how fast these guys are moving the best proxy possible for their effort. And so do you think it's true? Do you share our hypothesis that a effort level may matter more in hockey than almost any other sport? B you see it at different stages of hockey, like visibly playoff versus regular season, overtime versus non overtime. And then C this is knowable information, Sam, y'all have the motion track and you got to let us know what it says.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe on A and B, but I'm I'm not so sure about C, just because I mean, if you're just using speed as your proxy, you know, it's easier to be fast in the middle of the ice as opposed to in the corners, right? And if if most of the effort is happening along the walls or in the corners, then you know you're naturally going to be moving slower at that point in time. Now, I mean, those are also things you could you could try to decode with with tracking data. Um and I mean, I think anybody who's watched a, a playoff game over the last week or so and compared it to a regular season game, I mean, it's a very clear difference in, in, in the viewing experience. And so it sure seems like these things matter. It seems like playing hard and, and effort matters. But um, you know, to date, there hasn't been uh, much conclusive evidence in, in the public sphere that would say you know, and curious, the uh,
2: You're playing us, Sam. You're playing us. <laughs> You're playing us, Dad If because if I were a general manager, I know nothing about hockey. So this is exactly what I'd ask. I'd say, Sam, go model effort for me. I mean, I don't, there's there's very little I care about more. I mean, we can talk middle all you want to, but that's really hard. Here's something that's not hard to either observe or teach. It's effort. So go model effort for me somehow. We've got all the motion tracking in the world. Yeah, yeah. You tell me about corners. Okay, figure out how to do it. Somebody's doing yeah, this. Right?
1: Well, well, I'll give you one. I'll give you one that that is measurable in terms of what what is out there publicly is the types of penalties that are taken in the playoffs versus in the regular season, and it sure seems like players are a little bit more uh, a little bit more prudent in terms of the way they're playing, and they're they they know what they can get away with in the playoffs, and they know what they can't get away with, and they're they're uh, acting in a way that would prevent them from taking uh, penalties as much as they do in the regular season. So, I mean, that's an effect that you can measure with public data and you'll mm-hmm. see that there are certain types of penalty calls happen less in the playoffs, mm-hmm. um, you know, in part because the players are, are, uh, you know, being smarter
6: on the ice. Radio,
2: radio listeners. You didn't see Sam's guilty smile whenever we told him he was playing us earlier. And, and I was reminded of that when he said, we could look at the public data on penalties to look at, to perceive effort. So just sharing some insight on what the pins are obviously doing. I want to, we'll look forward to hearing about it in ten, a conference, 10 years from now, Shane.
4: Well, I, I mean, I guess maybe I'll push back on behalf of Sam a little bit too, is, uh, you know, cause I've often thought about trying to, how one would measure effort. I remember being, you know, part of some conversations about trying to measure grit in, in hockey a few years ago and stuff like that. But I think um, it's, it's, it is difficult in that, even if you do have the, the highest resolution, like here's where the puck is and here's where all the players are. You know, second by second. I mean, so much of the effort that is kind of relevant, that I think Sam was speaking of is, you know, when you're in the corner and there's like three different sticks come trying to get at the same puck and it's up against the boards and you're trying to kind of just sort of who comes out with that and who, you know, is that a measure of skill? Is that a measure of effort? Was there differential effort? in that versus like what it would have been the regular season. I do think, I I mean, I, I guess I'll, I I agree with you Kate, completely that it's like that. That's the type of thing one should try and get at. But I do think even with our current technology,
2: it's got to be pretty hard to get at that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what a noble challenge. What a, what a great Mm -hmm. thing to get at. And it just feels like one of these things we, it, it ought to, it's, it's one of these things we feel like we experience when we watch it on TV and we know there's some technology out there. It sounds like a fun thing to do. Um, what Talk about the, the playoffs and how how are the playoffs experienced on the inside, Sam, because Shane, one of, we all kind of have our pet theories on this show, and one of the ones that Shane's known for is these coin flip playoffs, and I happen to remember the origin of the thing, and he was talking about ice hockey in particular. So we know that Michael Lopez has done some work on randomness in sports, and he shows that hockey is the most random. In fact, there's this great observation that hockey would – need to play best of 53 playoff series to have the same diagnosticity as a seven game nba series that just shows how much more randomness is involved with hockey versus versus the nba i mean how is that how is that thought of and how is it experienced inside the nhl because on the one hand you live and die with what happens on the ice and whether you advance in the playoffs and who wins the cup on the other hand you perceive this randomness and how do you bring those things together all that randomness affects whether you live or die
1: yeah well i think you 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 said it well it's it's very stressful uh to know that uh you know some games no matter what you do you're just not going to get the outcome you want um i do think that there is uh you know a little bit of an internal struggle when you you know between process and outcome i think most people these days are, are very process oriented but you know, in the playoffs, it, it is still a seven game series and, you know, outcomes in the end are the only thing that matters. And so, um, you know, you have to be you have to try to balance those two things in the playoffs and and try to keep a level head. But, um, you know, it's certainly the, the fact that hockey is so random relative to these other sports uh, certainly makes it a lot more stressful uh, when you're on the inside.
2: Well listen, man. Shane, go ahead.
4: Well, I I just kind of want to ask you one kind of pertinent one to this year's playoffs. So, like, particularly the Oilers Jets series that just ended with the Jets sweeping the Oilers, one could argue that that was a fairly random outcome, especially given that several, like at least two of those games went to like three or four overtimes. Um, Do you sort of see that particular series as was that just a random outcome or what was that somewhat, what was that predictable based on, you know, kind of some process of the matchup between
1: the Jets and Oilers? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you you can make the same point about the Washington Boston series where I think three games, three or four, three I think three games went to overtime in that series, uh, including a couple double overtime games. Um, I think if you replayed all of these series, you would very rarely see the same team win in the same number of games, um, just because of that uh, that randomness aspect.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Sam, listen, we're out of time. We're going to to let you go, but there's a lot more we need to talk with you about with hockey, so we've got a few more rounds of playoffs to go. Hopefully, we can have you back. You can talk us through the playoffs in a little more detail. In the meantime, we know you've got some business. The Pens are down 2-3 going into the game. that will play the day this goes up. Wednesday morning, you guys play Wednesday night, and y'all have had some overtime games as well. So we wish you the best with that. We wish you the best with the work you're doing there. Always enjoyable visiting with you. We hope to do so again soon.
1: Well, thanks for having me on. I hope it's not another two or three years before the next hockey guest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: we'll, we'll work on that, Sam. Thanks, man. All right. And that has been another Wharton Money Bottle, another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, Adi and Shane here joining me in the fourth quarter for Eric Bradlow. Of course, for our boss man, Maddie Datz, for the associate boss man, Deion Simpkins, who makes things happen, by the way. This thing wouldn't go without Dion. And for you guys, the listeners, appreciate you being here. Come back and join us next week. We'll do it again between now and then. Enjoy your sports.